Welcome to the Action Research Podcast. Somehow, the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. My name is Adam Stieglitz, PhD candidate at the University of Louisville, and also director and co-founder of the Andean Alliance for Sustainable Development, a social change organization in the highlands of Peru. My name is Joe Levitan, an assistant professor and graduate program director at McGill University, as well as the co-founder and co-director of Centro Educativo Payatayu, a community-based learning center in the Peruvian Andes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to season two, episode two of the Action Research Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in today. I'm Adam Stieglitz. And I'm Joe Levitan. So today we have a special guest, as always, and I think it is only appropriate to pass the mic to you to do the introductions. We are thrilled. So thrilled. So thrilled to introduce (laughs) Dr. Kayla Johnson. Assistant Professor in the Department of Educational Policy Studies and Evaluation and Program Chair of International Education at the University of Kentucky. Beyond that, Kayla is also my wife, and we do a lot of work together in the Peruvian Andes. One fun fact about Kayla that only you Action Research Podcast listeners are going to be privy to is that she's one of the fastest and most accurate puzzlers I've ever met. So we are thrilled to have Kayla here with us to have some conversations uh, about something that's really tricky in action research, which is collaboration. And what better way to talk about collaboration and action research than with people who collaborate on a regular basis and have quite a close relationship when it comes to collaboration. Kayla, it's great to have you on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad that you came on today, Kayla, because like I think this is one of those topics where it's important to have people talking about it that have experience in the field with collaboration. You know, I think it's one of those terms that although people write about it, if you're sitting at your desk writing about collaboration, considering yourself an expert on collaboration, but you're not out in the field. I mean, to me, that just doesn't really work. You guys know what I mean? So Kayla, I know that you, you know, have tons of experience in this field. Um, especially collaborating with Joe on your guys' projects. So hopefully we can pull that out of this discussion. And like we always try and do tie some of the, the theory to practice. Right. And I think one of the exciting things about this episode being about collaboration and us being able to talk through this is while Joe and I do collaborate on everything that we do in Peru, we also write about collaboration. And so when we're writing up the research that we do, a lot of our big findings are really about the collaborative process and how we have learned to work collaboratively or work with effective or ethical collaboration with indigenous communities in Peru. And we try to write about that in a way that other leaders who want to do similar work or work toward educational change can learn from our processes and read about our ideas and our lessons learned about collaboration. And so I think we'll be able to dig into that today. Great. So before we dive in to hearing a little bit more about what you guys are doing in the field with that regard. 
I say we start talking about collaboration through that lens, through the lens of action research, but it really goes hand in hand, especially in consideration with our experiences with what has been commonly understood as just the term development, and in our case, international development. So I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between those, those two spectrums. But in a sense, what, what we were talking about before is it's helpful to understand collaboration from looking at it through this like top down versus bottom up lens. And I think especially in development, you know, traditionally collaboration, you see more so happening from a top down lens. And what we mean when we say that is you've got all these different actors in, in the development sphere. And then what we're referring to as collaboration, you've got typically an organization that's facilitating, if you will, some sort of project with communities that, you know, in theory, have some sort of challenge or problem that is trying to be addressed. And then you typically also have on the other end of that spectrum, some sort of funder or overarching agency that's also involved in designing the timelines and the processes and the outcomes of some sort of development intervention. And I think that traditionally, from what I've seen, the collaboration tends to happen between whoever is sort of at the top of the food chain. In this case, it's like, you know, international organization or some foundation and an organization, perhaps a nonprofit or a community organization. And they're kind of having all of the dialogue and coming up with a plan for what's going to ultimately affect, quote unquote, the beneficiaries of a project. And unfortunately, I think it's pretty common that those, again, quote unquote, beneficiaries are left out of the dialogue with respect to what's going on in that project, right, which has all sorts of could be negative impacts on the project and the outcomes, which we can dive further into. On the other hand, especially from an action research lens or more participatory lens, you might have what we would consider to be bottom-up collaboration, in which case, if there is an organization working with a community to achieve some sort of change or address a problem on a more bottom-up approach, that, that's where the, the real juice of the communication is happening, the collaboration, the discussion, really understanding you know what the challenges are talking about the ways in which you're going to go and approach them what are the perhaps activities that they're collaborating on to achieve some sort of change or impact and while foundations or international organizations whoever what might be are also involved in that and a more bottom of approach they understand that that's important that sort of dialogue and could have a better chance of leading to positive outcomes or addressing a challenge or impact in a positive way so I know that was a little bit of a mouthful, but I'm going to leave it at that for now and just kind of open up the floor to you guys. What do you think? I think that the, the three of us are really attuned to this idea that this top-down approach doesn't really work in a lot of these communities that we've worked with in Peru. And that's why we're really flipping that. And we're trying to work from the bottom up, work from the ground up with the people on the ground who would be affected by the, the changes that we're trying to implement um, in this case, and at least in Joe and I's case, to improve education in rural communities. And so when we were talking earlier before we started this, we started trying to think of a definition of what does this bottom-up collaboration look like in action research? And I don't know if we arrived at a definition, but I do know that we enumerated some characteristics or things of, like, what does this actually look like? I think one of the things that bottom-up collaboration looks like is the sense of trust and mutual respect that happens, especially 
between individuals within groups. You know, there are times when people disagree, but if you have trust and mutual respect, then it's much easier to come to an understanding or at least be able to highlight or identify an objective that, that everybody agrees with to move forward. I think that building that level of trust and respect and mutual understanding takes a long time. Some of the hardest work is really just being able to do that, being able to get on the same page. And then when you get off that page, for whatever reason, getting back on the same page, because a lot of the facets of collaboration, when it is not two large institutions making decisions for other people, but actually having other people make decisions for themselves, means that having a interpersonal space where people who are coming at things from different perspectives, having this sense of multivocality and having to do this with a lot of other competing things, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens with our work in rural Peru, you know, people are farmers and they are professionals and they are parents and caretakers for elders. And there's a lot of competing things happening. And so there's a lot of balancing that needs to happen. So one of the things that we need to do is to make sure that we are sensitive to the lived realities of the people that we're collaborating with. When we are trying to come up with identifying in the action research process, this iterative cycle of action and reflection. So the first part of it is identifying an issue that needs to be addressed. And to identify an issue that needs to be addressed, especially from a bottom-up perspective, when you're looking at people's lived experiences, the setting of objectives is one of the most crucial and most complicated facets of doing action research. Because once everybody has a shared, contextualized, well-identified problem to solve, and then some objectives to meet, it's a lot easier to move forward. But getting to that point takes a lot of work. And it's good work. It's important work. It's valuable work. Uh, it's rewarding, uh, but it's also challenging. Right. And, and Joe, and I think Adam, you both really talked a lot about the importance of setting objectives collaboratively and what, what the collaborative process looks like in arriving at what you're trying to achieve. And the next step is how do you actually do the thing? How do you work toward those objectives? And so the, one of the other sort of characteristics of good collaboration in bottom-up action research that we came up with was this idea of recognizing the unique strengths of each collaborator and knowing when it is sort of your time, there's a space for you to step up and take on a responsibility or take on a task or knowing when to step aside because you have a collaborator who is better positioned to achieve that outcome than you are or to take on a particular part of the process than you are. And that takes a lot of humility. And I, to speak practically, we like to get in there and do the work, but we have started to recognize, you know, there are times when Joe's better achieving certain outcomes and there are times that I'm better. And it has been a, a process over the years that we've worked together to come to that understanding. And so it's important to recognize that these things take time. You have to hone these skills and you have to practice these things and they don't necessarily come naturally. But being able to understand where your strengths lie and in particular where your strengths are in any given context is, is really important to being able to achieve the goals that you have set collaboratively with your collaborators. I'm going to ask you guys to talk a little bit more about your project in Peru, where we can hopefully pull out some practical examples about what you guys are doing and what so that way we can hear about what collaboration actually looks like. But before I do, there's just an overarching point that I keep going back to in my head that I want to bring to the discussion. So we're kind of jumping into what collaboration looks like, but 
I think I sort of overlooked in my introduction about bottom-up versus top-down collaboration. I kind of overlooked why it's important. And, and to, to me, it's worth pulling out. So it's helpful to look at collaboration through a top-down lens in this regard, because ultimately collaboration is important because it can truly be the factor that affects the actual impact or extent to which we're addressing an identified challenge. And that's really what action research and what we define as development is all about. And from a top-down lens, right, if you look at collaboration, often what that means is that there's all this dialogue being had between pretty much all actors that involve everybody except for the quote-unquote beneficiary or the people that are experiencing some sort of challenge that we're all in it to address. But if you're not involving the people that matter the most in that dialogue and or discussion and or project planning, there's a good chance that all of that energy and time and resources and money that are, that are being dumped into these projects are just being wasted. And furthermore, the challenge that you're trying to address through this whole intervention, you're not going to see any sort of impact there. You're not going to see those, those challenges being addressed. So you're just wasting everybody's time. And at the end of the day, probably creating a bad name for yourself in the community. On the other hand, you know, a more bottom-up approach to collaboration, you're bringing in people in the field, in the communities that you're working with, whoever it is that's addressing this challenge, into the process of project planning, into the process of coming up with activities that are meaningful, into the process and discussion of how resources could or should be allocated. And from what I've seen in the field, ultimately that it, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to solve any complex problem or challenge, but I think you're way more likely to achieve some sort of impact if that's the core of your collaborative process and that you're focusing your attention and resources and time and money and energy on the people that are most affected by the challenge. Joe or Kayla, if you have a response to that before we dive a little bit more into what, what it looks like in the field for you. Based on what you were talking about, Adam, I think that one of the things that we should mention is what does bottom-up collaboration look like broadly speaking you know what are the characteristics Kayla and I mentioned a few of the most important ones in, in our experience but I think there are a few other ones that we need to make sure that we cover just so that uh, the listeners have a good sense of what we're talking about so communication active communication good communication transparent communication like Kayla mentioned having good communication practices and making sure that there's a sense of equality equity and justice and the communication practices. Kayla also mentioned humility. So making sure that we're all humble, it's hard to maintain humility and constantly being able and willing to recognize when it's time to step back or step aside. And also when it's time to, with all humility, step up to do something and to have the communication skills to be able to figure out who's doing what, when, and how, why. That's really important. Another thing is patience. You know, one of the things that Adam was mentioning and that Kayla was mentioning is just like, it takes a long time to build this stuff. And patience is really important to make sure that everybody can work through whatever it is we're working on. I would say the most important one, especially from a bottom up approach is this idea of giving due attention to the power dynamics of the situation. Because just working from the bottom up doesn't inherently mean that you and your in our case, community collaborators are equals. That kind of dynamic takes a lot of time and effort to build. It doesn't just happen. And so a lot of what we, I know what Joe and I talk about and write about and think about is 
how do we work productively with these community members when there is such an uneven field because of these particular aspects of our identity? And so I think that's something I know we're going to talk a little bit about later. But to me, that is one of the, the biggest key characteristics of a bottom-up approach is giving this due attention to power dynamics. When we talk about power dynamics, it's really important to mention that voices and whose voices are heard, how they're heard, whose voices have weight is really important to think about. So when we're talking about power dynamics, you know, there are micro and macro facets of power dynamics. In the community itself, the power dynamics are nuanced. Who's the president of the community at the time? Or who is the person who has a certain amount of weight because of their charismatic personality? Some of these power dynamics affect whose voices are heard and whose voices are not heard when it comes to issues of gender, when it comes to issues of relative wealth, when it comes to issues of education, when it comes to just physical characteristics. You know, when many organizations, studies have shown, taller people end up speaking more and being hurt more. We don't know. But that's one of those things where there are these micro dynamics of power that affect whose voices are heard. There's this personal characteristic aspect of it, but then there's also this more situational or maybe contextual aspect of, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Joe, when you talked about how voices are heard, the process of developing collaborations or of gathering knowledge is also important to consider from a power dynamic aspect of, are you engaging with your collaborators in a way that is respectful or responsive to their normal processes? Or are you imposing something that maybe doesn't make as much sense in their particular cultural context? And so that's also something to keep in mind is how you're actually going about addressing power dynamics or eliciting and listening to different voices. I think the other thing, which is something that Kayla already said, is the identifying people's strengths and ways to contribute. You know, people have limited amounts of time, people want to do and are skilled at different things. And so one of the things about really good collaboration is in combination with humility, good communication, patience, just power dynamics and multivocality is allowing people to identify, okay, here's the problem. Here's the objectives. Here's what we want to do. Now, who's going to do what? And then the people who are best suited to do that different tasks are doing it rather than having people using their skills in ways that are not as in time in ways that are not as productive. Awesome. I think from our previous discussion, we just identified the following six characteristics of bottom-up collaboration, broadly speaking, right? Communication, humility, patience, just power dynamics, making sure people's voices are heard and identifying people's strengths and ways to contribute. So given that, I think it's a good time to go back to one of our favorite segments from season one, Kayla, if it's all right with you, and do a lightning round. Are you familiar with that? Have you been listening? <laughs> I am an avid AR an avid It's time for a lightning round. Adam and Joe have prepared some key questions for our guest. The challenge is to answer them in the shortest amount of time. Okay, so let's kick it off with communication. In your experience, Kayla, what has been a way that communication has manifested as a form of bottom-up collaboration? I think in our experience, communication has, it's just been constant and it's been at lots of different levels. And especially because Joe and I, a lot of the work that we've been doing has been from the U.S. throughout the school year, our school year. 
and we're communicating with people on another continent. And so opening, having those lines of communication always open with them is really important, but also between ourselves because we are married. I think sometimes we operate under this assumption that we're on the same page, but when we get into practice, we know that that's not necessarily the case. And so even amongst ourselves as the research team that's in the US, we have to constantly communicate with one another. Awesome. I was going to see if Joe wanted to come in for a quick addition. Since you're throwing him in your response. Yeah, I I mean, I think what Kayla's saying is the communication is just vital. Like clear, transparent, honest communication is really important and not assuming that we're on the same page all the time. That's the case, whether you're in a marriage or between community collaborators. It's really important to have clear communication because a lot of our day-to-day communication in life is implied or has a lot of connotations. But when you start to do work together in community and in these complex situations, it's really important to be very clear and try to dig up some of those assumptions or implied meanings because it's important to get on the same page. We wanted to sit down with each other and define a clear plan of what we're going to talk about and how it's going to go. Because without that, you don't know what's going to happen. And part of the part of bottom up action research is developing a plan. You might deviate from that plan. You need to be flexible from that plan, but communicating a clear plan with one another that you've developed together, both myself and Joe, but also our collaborators in Peru is really vital. Okay, humility, let's keep going on. Humility, Kayla, how have you either experienced or manifested or proven to have to be, show a sense of humility in the field? Oh boy, this is probably the hardest lesson that I've learned throughout our work in Peru. And so when I'm thinking about humility, I'm thinking about this idea of knowing when to step up, when to step aside and when to take a step back. And so for me, I've always considered myself this this natural leader or somebody who really likes to take on different challenges. And one thing I very quickly learned in Peru is that because of the cultural context, because of my particular identities, there are certain spaces where I'm not effective as the leader, where I'm not effective being the person to step up. And so I've learned to, to step aside and let others step in or step up when they're just better positioned to do things than I am. And in a lot of ways that that person has been Joe. So there are just spaces or people or conversations that Joe is way more effective in than I am. And while sometimes it pains me to say that, it's really a crucial factor in doing action research and work in collaborating with others is just knowing, are you the right person for this job or is somebody else way better at it than you are? One of the things that I have spent a long time practicing is to step aside for others, especially in the community, to take up uh, whatever it is they've decided to do. And so it works in all realms. It's like, who's best positioned? Who's got the energy? When we're all on the same page from that good communication, it kind of comes up as long as you have the humility to step aside when you need to. And there's also this idea of capacity building as well. So there are times when Joe or I could step up, but it's really better for us to step aside and let somebody else take that place where we aren't the ones who constantly step up and take charge. It's so tricky, but it's also like arguably the most important one, because if you can't shed that sense of humility, that's almost like the definition of when you start veering into what we've been referring to as top down collaboration, right? Because what that means is you're just taking charge and not being necessarily open to allowing the local ownership to rise to the surface in, in this important process. To me, it's almost like it needs to be something... Sometimes we talk about topics on this podcast where it's just like, we talk about reflection, but reflection is so broad 
And every now and then there's a concept that comes up where it's like, man, that should be a very particular topic or characteristic that every action researcher is reflecting on and addressing intentionally before, during, and after the action research process. You know what I mean? So let's keep moving on. Kayla, have you had to show patience at all as an action researcher in the field? Or how have you seen patients manifest? I don't know, Joe. Have I had to practice patience <laughs> in the field? <laughs> Very much. Of what we do together, what we do in action research with communities, but also just working in general, patience has been key. Along with humility has been a really hard a hard lesson learned. And there are lots of things about the work that we do in Peru that requires a lot of patience. One is just the fact that it takes time to develop these collaborations. And Joe mentioned earlier that I came into this collaboration after he had been working there for a number of years. And while he had established a lot of relationships, it wasn't a given that I was going to be part of those relationships in Peru. And I really had to put in a lot of time and effort learning the language, understanding the culture, getting close with the different families and the students and the leaders that Joe had already done. And that that was really frustrating for me to have to go through. But I, at the same time, I understood. And it took a lot of patience to, one, come to that realization and then also understand, okay, now I got to put in my time. You know, Joe did this. Now's my time. I have to do this. And then I guess another important aspect of patience is just understanding that um, you have to be patient with people, so not just situations, but we we have encountered a lot of a lot of individuals in the work that we do that have different priorities or different interests. And we also deal with a lot of ambiguity. And that requires us to be really patient in what we expect of people, be patient with the timeline that we might have set for a project and knowing when we have to hit pause or rewind or fast forward. So yeah, absolutely. Patience has been, Again, a vital, vital part of being successful and ethical and productive in the collaborations that we've been trying to do. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I'm gonna I'm gonna chime in too, if that's okay, because like one of the things that what you said made me think of, and I hadn't really thought about it too much before, but even though when we're talking about collaboration, that often implies like we're coming up with a shared process, planning or making process or activity still as what I'll refer to us as like action research facilitators, right? As those that are not necessarily always members of, or part of like, you know, the, the community or group of people that we're working with, we're still kind of inherently coming into that process with a plan. But as soon as you start building those relationships, you can't assume that anybody else in the community has done any of that sort of preemptive planning. They're just going on with their day-to-day -day lifestyle. So as a facilitator or researcher, you have to really be patient and considering that, right? And understanding that it's a slow, tedious process to get people on the same wavelength with, to build a collective vision and then be able to move forward and, and planning together. So to me, that's a huge consideration as it relates to how we're being patient in the process as action researchers. So one of the things that I think is really important about patience is to let the energy of people's ideas build as well. So, you know, one of the things about humility with stepping aside or making sure that voices are heard is to make sure that you give time and space for people to develop their ideas. You know, we all have ideas. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned about and experienced here in Peru is that there are a lot of really great ideas that 
can come out. But one of the problems is there are a lot of structural barriers to having those ideas become reality. And so trying to figure out ways forward with people's ideas and trying to have people's ideas build on each other. You know, that's one of the key facets of collaboration on the interpersonal level. And patience is required for that because it takes a while for people to be able to have that idea come out and build on other people's ideas. So this next one, Kayla, I know you have a lot to say about. Talk to me about power dynamics and collaboration, what that means to you. Sure. And I think it connects nicely with the idea of being patient and understanding of people's competing priorities or interests, or as Joe put it, the different ideas that they can bring to the table. So thinking about power dynamics as it relates to research design, I think a lot of action researchers go into a project thinking, I'm going to apply all of the principles of action research, and it's going to be participatory, and everybody's going to contribute to every single aspect of the project. And I think in some ways, Joe and I, we have really embodied that expectation. But really, when it gets into practice, we see that because of different power dynamic or because of different competing interests, some of our collaborators don't want to be collaborators in that like academic way we write about participation and collaboration sense. Um, they're in a lot of ways fine with us doing some of it and then contributing to other parts of it. So how it relates to power dynamics is we have to think about our roles as the researchers and not forcing our academic conceptualization of what collaboration, quote, should look like. And understanding that in order to be responsive to or that in order to create more equitable power dynamics, we have to honor the ways in which our collaborators want to engage and the extent to which they want to engage and the extent to which that they just don't want to, um, where they want to contribute and where they don't. And so I think constantly being aware of how people want to engage and how they don't want to engage is an important part of equitable power dynamics. Right. And not forcing people to do anything. You know, that's the big takeaway with equitable power dynamics is people's energy and time and ideas are necessary for this project, but that means that there's going to be some negotiation. And when we don't force people to do, you know, you're obliged to come to this meeting at this time, that kind of stuff. If there is a structure in place in the community, it could work, but in other times and places, those power dynamics can be very problematic. So it's really important to think about structuring the power dynamics where if somebody's like, here's what I can contribute, then you say, okay, that's great. We're going to you know, hear you. We're going to bring your issues or ideas forward. And that's going to make a more equitable power dynamic because you're being heard. I also think it's important to acknowledge that having power in a particular situation isn't always problematic. And when we write in academic spaces about power dynamics, we often talk about relinquishing our power or sharing our power with collaborators. But there's also this aspect of the power that Joe and I hold as academics, as PhD holders who are at institutions in North America that we can actually leverage our power in ways to contribute to the shared goals that we've set with our collaborators. So for example, I know that Joe has been in lots of conversations with policymakers at the regional and the federal levels in Peru. And that's not something that community members would necessarily have access to, but Joe does because he has that power. So we aren't always just thinking about how do we share our power with our collaborators, but we're also thinking about how we can leverage the power that we have given our positionalities toward the interests of our collaborators. 
That's fascinating. I have a quick follow-up question for either or both of you. Is this something that you guys address explicitly with the people that you're working with, or is it more tacit and behind the scenes? I try to be fairly explicit depending upon the relationship and the dynamic that we have with people. So for example, for one of the projects that we're working on, when first-generation students from rural communities, we were working with them to identify challenges in being successful in post-secondary school and how their experiences have affected them kind of in their well-being and their identity. The overall goal, we said explicitly, was to make sure that policymakers would hear their voices in a way that would push for change. And so, In that particular situation, we're very explicit about all of the things that we were talking about. When we're working with the community of Payata, for example, now that we have been there for so many years, we can be very explicit about some of these things. That doesn't mean that we're like being explicit on the front end side when it's advocacy work, but it is within the community itself. We're very clear about, you know, what is it that you want us to say? And then here's how they identify what it is that needs to happen then say, okay, so if I say it like this, Does that still meet what it is that you want people to hear? So there's that like, you know, you could call it member checking, but that editor cycle of like, here's what, you know, one of the issues. And then here has been some objective setting and some ways forward. All right, I'm going to try to translate this because I have the social experience of policymakers. Does this phrasing make sense? And if they say yes, then we can go forward with that. But that's kind of the explicit facet of it. The next one has to do with making sure that people's voices are heard. Who wants to talk about that? This is turning into our first paired lightning round, but I I like it. So Kayla, you want to go first? Sure. And I'll start with the processes that we use to elicit voices, to be able to listen to them. So I think I mentioned earlier about the importance of engaging with your collaborators in ways that are reflective of their normal processes of engagement. One of the important things about the idea of including voices and making sure that different voices are heard in your research is developing processes of eliciting those voices that are aligned with the realities of the communities. So communities often have their own ways of engaging with one another and dialoguing. And so one of the things we try to do in the work that we do in Peru is mirror that, to elicit voices using the same processes the communities are already doing. And part of that increases buy-in, but it also makes sure that people are more comfortable. Not only are we sensitive to the processes that we use to elicit voices, but we're also sensitive to whose voices are being represented. So when we're doing work with communities or we're collaborating with communities, there are lots of different types of community members, right? And there are lots of different dynamics that go on there. And so when we're trying to work toward, for example, school change, it's really important for us to talk to not only students or parents, but also community elders, community educators, regional educators, to really get a sense more holistically of the situation and to ensure that you know, everybody here is going to be working toward this change effort. And so everybody's voices should be should be heard and considered and valued. I mean, that's got to be one of the more important ones, right? I, I would hate to like say one is more important than the other, but getting a broad perspective of the people you're working with and even representation of voice, that's got to be like up there with one of the more important things you can do from a collaborative lens. Yeah, I think it's crucial. It's key. Well, that was an awesome way of framing it, Kayla. Thank you. And the last one 
if you could address has to do with identifying people's strengths and ways to contribute. How have you seen that in the field? I guess I could start with saying, by not doing this, you won't have an effective collaboration. If everybody is trying to either do the same thing or there are some aspects of your project that nobody's willing to do, then it's not going to work. And so one of the things that I'll speak about Joe and I as two collaborators, we have really worked to identify who is good at what, who has what particular strengths and who can be the most effective person for this particular aspect of the project. And also where are each of our weaknesses? I mean, it goes back to humility. Like we have to be really humble about who, like, am I the right person for this or is Joe the right person for this? And so we've really had to negotiate between us. So not even bringing the community into this part of it, but just between us about who is, you know, is this your strength or is this my strength? And sometimes that means that somebody's doing some work that they're not super excited about, but it's work that needs to be done if the collaboration is going to be effective. And so that's really been a negotiation on our end, but it also extends to the collaborators in the community, understanding what their strengths are or what their shortcomings are or places that they could grow. And by identifying those, making sure that they're able to contribute we're helping to build capacity on the ground because we are facilitating opportunities for them to contribute in ways that really highlight their strengths. Man, and this one's so tricky, right? Because like in, in my experience, as much as you try and plan or put intention towards doing this, right? And in this case, we're talking about identifying people's strengths. I feel like inevitably there's people that just rise to the surface and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? You can facilitate all the activities, you can do all the participatory whatevers, and then like you're still not going to just get that right right from the start. And, and to me, it also kind of connects, I guess, with being patient and allowing for that sort of natural ebb and flow to occur, whereas you do end up with key stakeholders that end up being critical to the process. As a facilitator, you can only do so much to some extent as far as this is concerned, you know, and then it's just a matter as much as like identifying it, it's like allowing it to manifest in, in, in the process organically. Right. And even recognizing that sometimes it's not going to happen organically. And that person, that right person is not going to rise up and maybe somebody stepping up who shouldn't be. And this is where all of these different characteristics tie together because what that requires is humility and it requires your being able to communicate with the people on your team to be able to say, hey, maybe this isn't an area where you can contribute, but we have somebody else on our team who would be great for this. And I think a lot of collaborations fail because of the inability of the team to recognize their individual strengths or their personal strengths and weaknesses, but also in their inability to communicate that same thing about other people. And so working as a team really requires collectively all six of these different characteristics that we've enumerated here. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I think that's good. Is that a mic drop? I think that's a mic drop. I feel like we're leaving some discussion points on the table, but this is such a big topic that I kind of think it's worthy of circling back to. I mean, this was like an awesome conversation. Kayla, you were so articulate in defining some of these. That was a tough ass, this lightning round. And I, I think you guys nailed it. Kayla, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a long time coming, huh? Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Hopefully I get invited back after will you, this. Will you come? I'm inviting you now. I don't care what Joe says. I'm inviting you back. <laughs> I accept. <laughs> All right. Guys, it's a pleasure, Joe. Thanks so much. Yeah, it is great. Thanks, Adam. 
Thanks, Kayla, for coming on. Thanks for listening. Have a good day, everybody. How have you found yourself in the world of action research? Want to be interviewed or share one of your projects? Engage in interactive dialogue with Joe, Adam, and other experts and listeners in the community on Twitter at the underscore AR pod or the Action Research Podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shikha DeWalker, and Vanessa Gold. See you next time.